Bienvenidos, marhaban, and welcome to the Never Never podcast, exploring the Dresden Files series by Jim Butcher, urban fantasy done right. I'm your host, Christine. I'll be releasing multi-chapter analysis episodes for each book, along with special bonus topic episodes, apparently on no particular schedule. Here we discuss the series' overarching plot, groundwork, character arcs, and world-building, as well as any meta-aspects, mythology, callbacks to other books, foreshadowing, and theory. The Never Never podcast may include spoilers from all sources, including the books, short stories, and graphic novels, and blog posts, interviews, and panels from the Butcher himself. The Dresden Files features mature themes, including sexuality and violence. Also, I'm terrible at watching my language, so the Never Never podcast is intended for mature audiences, despite having playful, if not childish, tendencies. Episode 9, Burning Bridges Behind Me, recorded February 19th, 2021, covering Stormfront, Book 1, Chapters 22 through 27. In this episode... We've been climbing to the top of the roller coaster, occasionally experiencing small jerking pauses. Someone a couple of cars behind us even complains. Come on! But then we continue. Up, up, up. We begin here with the last halt, in sight of the top, which actually lets us freefall back down a short ways, setting our hearts to pounding, and we jerk back into our seats as we stop again. Then... Then, impossibly, we shoot to the summit, slowing to an imperceptible crawl for one moment of dread at the peak, and then ride that shit, hands in the air, screaming our heads off the whole way down. More disappointment. Another bar fight. A good friend. A foreboding, corrupted lair. A warlock breaking the worst kind of bad. Naked, gun-toting goons. Helpful automatons. A kitchen conflagration. And giant scorpions big as hounds! All this tied with a bow, with Jim's signature mercenary efficiency. So, let's draw our circle and step through the way to the never-never. Chapter 22, Murphy and the Scorpion. Harry bounds up five flights of stairs because he knows with his long-ass legs it will be faster than taking the elevator. His office is open and dimly lit inside. Harry, heart-pounding, creeps in carefully. In the spirit of lifeguarding and airplane oxygen masks, if whatever hurt Murphy took him out too, he'd be useless to save her. He looks and listens. He smells gunpowder and hears a dry, scuttling sound. Murphy's shoes poke out from behind his desk and she moans weakly as Harry calls to her, runs to her. There's very little blood, but her pulse is fast and weak, and Harry can feel the swelling of her arm through her jacket. He calls 911, warning that they'll need to treat for poisoning. Now, technically, stings and bites count as venom, not poison, which is ingested, inhaled, or absorbed through the skin. But it's the same idea. Through her mental fog, Murphy calls Harry a bastard and accuses him of having set her up. I'm not sure where this notion came from, as he told her not to go into his desk, that it was dangerous. He sped to her and, seeing her hurt, called her an ambulance. I can only think that she's both already pissed at him and, you know, addled by the sting. Speaking of which, I've been stung by a scorpion. I was walking barefoot on my brick back porch. It was a scorpling, which is a baby scorpion, which means it emptied its entire stock of venom into the tender hollow between my fourth toe and the ball of my foot. While I wasn't screaming uncontrollably and I didn't experience any befuddlement, it was the only thing in my awareness. 8 out of 10 on the ER pain meter, comparable to childbirth. Still, 
I didn't mean to squish it. R.I.P. little dude. Murphy was not stung by a normal scorpion, scorpling, or adult. As Harry is trying to figure out how to get Murphy out of danger and how to retrieve the talisman to beat the shadow man, Murphy cuffs Harry's wrist to her own. I think whatever her reason, once she decided she was going to arrest him, she was not going to let him get away. This is a situation where only a dumbfounded series of blinks would do. Murphy, what have you done? Well, about now, a scorpion the size of a chihuahua jumps out at Harry's face. The dodge pushes away Harry's wizard staff and blasting rod, forcing him to block the giant stinger with some furniture, which breaks. Murphy continues to talk shit, and Harry lifts her and shambles with her to the exit. Then she realizes she can't see, and Harry realizes that she needs medical attention, like, five minutes ago. Harry considers his very limited options. He can't fight, hobbled as he is. He can't let Murphy get stung again. He just can't. No time for finding and fiddling with her keys. He can't bust the cuffs off with magic. He'd hurt them with shrapnel or worse. No time for a subtler spell to unlock them. And then he has a heartbreaking thought. Quote, Damn it, Dad, I thought. I wish you'd lived long enough to show me how to slip out of a pair of handcuffs. Unquote. Oof. If my feels had balls, that would have kicked them wearing cleats. They limp toward the elevator as the stairs were out of the question. The elevator took forever, and they could hear the scorpion coming toward them. Harry holds up his shield bracelet as the chitinous thing, bigger now and growing, scuttered down the hall at them, quote, as fast as a man can run, unquote. Gendered language, but there's been 20 years of growth toward equality, and I guess we'll see how well the later books have grown with us. Harry got his shield up just in time, and then they retreat into the elevator. The beast slams against the elevator doors, which had closed just in time. Yay for action tropes. Jim is brilliant at pacing fast-paced scenes, creating a fully cinematic visual for us to picture in our minds. I'd love to gush about his writing skill, just as much as I try to be honest about his shortcomings. Harry then thinks about the creature's seeming intelligence, waiting until he'd set his weapons down to ambush him. That it must be a construct or a golem of some kind. He begins this with the thought that the scorpion was no ordinary insect, and my pedantic ass could only say, well, of course not, it's an arachnid. Harry theorizes that Victor cursed the talisman once he found out Harry had it. This assumes that when Monica gave the talisman to Harry, she didn't know it was cursed. Mostly because it wasn't at the time. I know that previously, it might have been in episode one, I asked why Monica would give him something like this dangerous object and thought only that it must have been a contingency plan of some kind. That would make her slightly more sinister than she appears to be now. As the elevator goes down, Harry hears a metal shriek above, and a weight lands on the roof of the sardine can in which they're trapped. It was now the mass of a small gorilla. If it kept going at this rate, by the time it ripped open the box and dispatched them, it would be, quote, the size of some French cars, unquote. If he threw a fireball at it, it would rain melted elevator roof down on them. Then he realizes he can just scale up his air evocation. And with a giant vento servitas, he whooshed the car all the way up and flattened the enormous arthropod against the top of the shaft. There were crunches, ew, goo, yuck. Its inflated mass began to disintegrate into ectoplasm, and then to disappear entirely. So if you'll indulge me in following a small rabbit hole, I had never heard a satisfactory explanation for the manifestation of the immaterial before the Dresden Files. You know, that magic would call matter from the never-never to create substance here in the mortal world. Jim's magic system just makes sense even the other branches of magic. 
the symbolism of thaumaturgy and potion making and the calculations of energy for evocation, the intentionality of all of it, the power of emotion. Really, in Jim's world, it's the root of all power. The places of power are places that humans have made powerful by the importance of events that took place there or people who lived or died there. And above all, the power of belief. In the Dresden Files, magical artifacts don't even have to be the genuine article to provide juice for a spell. Now, people need only believe that they are. How cool is that? Way cooler than the fact that the wind spell that brought them to the top of the shaft has subsided. And there's this phenomenon called gravity. The elevator plummets, and Harry brings up his shield bracelet again, layering a flexible shield to absorb as much impact as possible. He describes it like being stuffed into packing peanuts. The crash is huge, but they're alive, and even mostly unharmed. Harry is stunned, and so are the paramedics in the lobby waiting for the elevator. Harry shouts his triumph, drunk on victory and adrenaline, until, on the street, the cold rain splats on his face, and he remembers how screwed he still is. Alive? Sure. Unmaimed? Thankfully. But Harry's also still cuffed to Murphy, still doesn't have the talisman, is still down a lock of hair, and the storm front is here. Chapter 23. Morgan in the Way. With Murphy's stupor, Harry manages to squeeze Murphy's delicate ectoplasm-slimed hand enough that he could slip the cuff off her wrist without too much skin off her thumb, and without the EMTs noticing. They treat Murphy, and Harry beats himself up for not being more forthcoming with her. He feels terrible. She's lying there, maybe dying. Harry is convinced it's his fault, and yet his instinct for self-preservation leads him to walk away before other emergency responders, especially the police, arrive, hating himself more every step he takes away from Murphy from making sure she'll be okay. One might say, burning bridges behind him. He begins to take better stock of the situation. He is indeed incredibly alive and unharmed. But the cops are after him. But Murphy has been delivered from immediate danger into the competent hands of medical professionals. But Murphy will likely never understand nor forgive him for what he'd had to do. But he'd gotten away to try and save his own life. But the storm was here, advancing from the west. But the lake house was a good 30 miles to the east. He does have some time, if he can find transportation. But his car is still wrecked at Mike the Mechanics, and he's out of cab fare, and too exhausted for a trek like that. But he thinks he knows to whom he can go to get him there. But Harry is hamstrung by the laws of magic, while Victor is a scary-ass, compunctionless, dark warlock who's probably broken every law of magic there is. Well, except maybe the one about opening or summoning from beyond the outer gates. Ah, put a long-term, we-won't-get-to-it-for-several-books pin in that. But he has his training and his experience. But he is sans tools. No staff, no blasting rod, no shield bracelet, no talisman, or conduit to reach his enemy, while the Shadow Man has his MFing DNA. But Harry does have his pentacle necklace, his personal talisman, his connection to his long descent from wizards of old including his precious mother, who died birthing him during a crucial celestial conjunction, making him one of the most powerful, but, but, 
but we know nothing about that. Yet. Tantalizing loose ends notwithstanding, I wonder if Jim knows the Zen parable of the farmer whose horse runs away. If y'all aren't familiar, it goes something like, A farmer's horse runs away, and his neighbors all say, What bad luck? And the farmer says, Maybe. A few days later, the horse returns, bringing with it two wild horses, and all the farmer's neighbors say, What good luck? And the farmer says, Maybe. While training the wild horses, the farmer's son is thrown and his leg is broken. All his neighbors say, What bad luck? And the farmer says, Maybe. Soon after, the kingdom goes to war and officials come to conscript all the young, able-bodied men to fight. Because of his leg, the son is not sent off to die. And the neighbors all say, What good luck? And the farmer says, Maybe. To give credit where it's due, I am paraphrasing the presentation from Zen Shorts by John J. Muff about Stillwater the Panda, who tells such parables to a sister and brothers to help them with their school-age people problems. Anywho, the point of the story is to demonstrate that no situation is all bad or all good, and one never knows what is going to happen next as a result of actions or circumstance. The oscillation of positives and negatives is a little dizzying, but they both serve to convey a similar glass-half-full and glass-half-empty philosophy. Harry's leg wound from the scorpion does not slow him down, but rather he lets the pain fuel him, his anger and his determination. He walks quickly to McAnally's. McAnally's? McAnally's. It's McAnally's. He walks quickly to McAnally's, packed this evening, every customer uneasy. Sensing the black magic mounting and the impending conflict between two bona fide wizards, knowing the price on Harry's head or heart, they have gathered here together, seeking the safety of the herd and the magical Faraday cage formed by the uniquely uneven configuration of tables, chairs, windows, and pillars. The place goes quiet, and no one, no matter his acquaintance to all of them, by face if not by name, will look up at Harry. I love what happens next. Quote, Mac, I said finally. My voice fell on the silence like a hammer on glass. I need to borrow your car. Mac hadn't quit polishing the bar with a clean white cloth when I entered, his spare frame gaunt in a white shirt and dark breeches. He hadn't stopped when the room had grown still. And he didn't stop when he pulled the keys out of his pocket and tossed them to me with one hand. I caught them and said, Thanks, Mac. Unquote. We should all be so lucky as to have friends like this, and so lucky as to not have probation agents like Morgan, who was waiting for Harry at the door. Morgan tells Harry to sit down, and threatens him by brandishing a couple of inches of the shining silver of the enchanted sword. Harry does not have time for this, and regrets his next action before he can even perform it, but Morgan is not expecting Harry to attack. Two blows, quick succession, with one of Mac's hardwood chairs, and Morgan is unconscious on the floor. Everyone in the room is astonished. They all know who Morgan is, and the shit Harry is in, having assaulted an officer of the White Council executing the duties of their office. Even though Morgan is incorrect, and an asshole, he's just trying to protect people from the threat he thinks Harry to be. Harry had dropped the keys, but Mac comes forward, makes sure Morgan is alive, he is, shakes Harry's hand, actually speaks a whole sentence fragment, 
and hands Harry the keys again. And this line is perfect. Again, Jim shows his mercenary efficiency. Quote, I took the keys and walked up, out of the light and shelter of McAnally's and into the storm, my bridges burning behind me. Chapter 21. I am not the shadow man. Y'all, I knew I wanted to quote from this chapter because it has some juicy, delicious descriptions, a really important defining character moment, and a curious event. But when I started going through to pick what to read for you, I couldn't decide because this passage is really good. But this one's good too. And I read further and realize like, oh crap, I want to read the whole second half of the chapter. (laughs) All two and a half paperback pages of it. So yeah, there's three main ideas plus the little mystery. So what I'm going to do is summarize and analyze the best I can and read just a couple of paragraphs illustrating each of these points. So this is just a damn good chapter, guys. Harry pushes Max 89 Trans Am past its speedometer's 130 mile per hour cap a couple of times. That's about 210 kilometers per hour, if anyone likes those better. Harry hydroplanes into the lake house driveway and throws up gravel, skidding to a stop. He lopes to the house to beat the leading edge of the storm, checking for magical wards, illusions, or spiritual guardians protecting the place. He stops to focus and brings up his sight. Jim describes a psychedelic opening of all of Harry's senses, not only to what is, but also specters of what was and possibilities of what could be. Harry sees the natural world in its cycles, trees as seeds, saplings, and shade trees, all the way through planks of wood creating human-made structures. He also sees the landscape in its different states during all four seasons. But the house? The house is different. Surrounded by restless shades, negative emotions, animosity, avarice, and animal need, draped like a chilling slime mold, and the resultant corrupt potent magic that tempts Harry with the dark side. Quote, but a sick feeling had settled into me as I looked on this darkling house with all of its stinking lust and fear, all of its horrid hate, worn openly upon it to my sight, like a mantle of flayed human skin on the shoulders of a pretty girl with gorgeous hair, luscious lips, sunken eyes, and rotting teeth. It repulsed me, and it made me afraid." This fear, as is hallmark for Harry, and really most people, makes him angry, beginning to seduce him to the allure of the power inherent in throwing the rules to the wind. Harry thinks of Morgan and the Council's distrust and persecution, despite Harry's ignorance at the same time of the offense. Why shouldn't he throw out the laws of magic to win the battle? It's what they all suspect of him, and expect of him anyway. But something, perhaps someone, brings him back from the brink. These three are all in a row, but we're going to split them up to share thoughts in between. Quote, I clenched my fists in fury, and I could feel the air crackle with tension as I prepared to destroy the lake house, the shadow man, and any of the pathetic underlings he had with him. 
With such power, I could cast my defiance at the council itself. The gathering of white-bearded old fools without foresight, without imagination, without vision. The council and that pathetic watchdog Morgan had no idea of the true depths of my strength. That en The energy was all there, gleeful within my anger, ready to reach out and reduce to ashes all that I hated and feared. Unquote and pause. I find it absurd that Harry accuses the council of lacking the qualities of foresight, imagination, and vision, as each of these three is an aspect either ascribed to or shown by members of the senior council, the white-beardiest of them all. Imagination required and demonstrated by Listens to Wind in his shape-shifting battle in Turncoat, Book 11. Now, foresight we can attribute to Rashid the Gatekeeper, who it is implied in Proven Guilty in Turncoat, Books 8 and 11 respectively, that he has some kind of portentous ability, perhaps because of his magical false eye, and he could also be said to have vision, as his eye can also detect forms of hidden pollution of the spirit, as shown in Cold Days, Book 12. And that's just two members of the Senior Council. The other council members, other than Ebenezer McCoy, whom we see own the battlefield, we can judge very little about their abilities. The Merlin has strong telepathic powers, Ancient Mai is good at protective wards, Langtree has talent with being stabbed to death, and Martha Liberty... yeah. And this should be telling, I forgot Simon Petrovich existed. So, but they're all hundreds of years old, and stupid powerful, and there are dozens of other wizards in the General White Council, likewise with decades or centuries of experience. I doubt they're all lacking in those qualities. Also, Morgan is a formidable warrior, hardly pathetic. Harry's just being petty, is my point. Okay. Quote, The silver pentacle that had been my mother's burned cold on my chest, a sudden weight that made me gasp. I sagged a little and lifted a hand. My fingers were so tightly crushed into fists that it hurt to try to open them. My hand shook, wavered, and began to fall again. Now we'll skip the next part and come back to it. Quote, I held it in my hand, felt its cool strength, its ordered and rational geometry. The five-pointed star within the circle was the ancient sign of white wizardry, the only remembrance of my mother. The cold strength of the pentacle gave me a chance, a moment to think again, to clear my head." Unquote. So this on its own is not that remarkable. This is his symbol of disciplined, measured, uncorrupted magic, his sole connection to his mother, Margaret, and it snaps him out of it. He does some breathing exercises to refocus himself to the task at hand and his moral center. Harry is not a murderer. He is not the shadow man. He is Harry, and that will have to be enough to prevail. And it's not said, at least here, but I'm sure he thinks of his mom as watching him somehow, and subconsciously he refuses to dishonor her. Woe be to the villain who pisses him off to the point where he takes the damn thing off. Even Rudolph was reactionary and didn't get that kind of mindful desertion of principles. So that's it for this chapter, except, except, this paragraph goes in between those two. Get this, quote, Then something strange happened. Another hand took mine. 
The hand was slim, the fingers long and delicate, feminine. The hand gently covered mine and lifted it, like a small child's, until I held my mother's pentacle in my grasp. Unquote. Another's hand, eh? Touches him, you say? A feminine hand, which leads him to grasp the one thing that both reminds him of mom and keeps him from crossing the threshold into murderer and warlock who would be hunted down like a man-eating lion territory. Who could this be but Harry's mother? In Blood Rites, Book 6, Harry impossibly sees her, speaks to her, even touches her in connection to his pentacle amulet while inside a soul gaze, this only lending credence to the assertion that Harry was, in fact, literally touched by the spirit of his departed mother. Chapter 25. The Opening Volley. Jim begins the chapter with a reminder of the lake house and what Harry saw. He uses words like foul, rotten, an abomination. The residue of dark magic oozes and crawls over the outside of the house, and there are creeping spectral things drawn to the corruption. He describes them as reptilian, rat-like, and insectoid. The whole reason Harry opened his sight in the first place, the purpose of searing this evil into his brain forever, to check for wards and traps. I mean, Victor is strong enough to be a White Council wizard, but efficient, practiced, and intricate, he ain't. There are none. He finds the front door unlocked, too. Perhaps Harry seriously overestimated this guy. Harry steps through the door with his aura and power intact. This vile place is home to no one. The creatures were inside, too. There was fuck music playing, the same song that was in the hotel at the beginning with Jennifer and Tommy Tom. Harry listens with his sight and hears a woman moaning softly, the Becketts, and Victor whispering an incantation over and over. The storm booms outside, and Victor begins to say the words with contempt. Harry steps from the entry hall into the open two-level house. They were casting in the kitchen dining area up on the balcony level. Turns out the spell Victor was casting was more complex than Harry would have thought. Under the upper floor, Harry saw boxes and boxes full of potion ingredients for making the three-eye. But that was not Victor's purpose tonight. His ancient, hateful words were meant for harm, meant to kill. Harry quakes from fear, but gathers his courage and his power as the storm intensifies and the sex quickens and the curse gets louder and he throws a fireball at the stereo with a shout of Fuego! He follows up with a Venice windspell, lifting him to the upstairs, duster billowing like a boss. In sweats and cowboy boots, let's not forget. Some shit is talked, and Victor grabs his trust sacrificial bunny to carve their poor little heart out with a sharpened spoon. Harry breaks the casting circle, leading the energy of the storm to break the circle around the Becketts. Everyone is thrown around. Victor throws his own fire at Harry, which Harry manages to block with a mental wall construct, even without his shield bracelet. Put a pin in that. But the fire had to go somewhere and it set the wood-beam ceiling ablaze. Victor calls his bone staff to him, and Harry throws him by abandoning magic and shoulder-checking him into a wall. A tussle ensues, and Harry's winning, Victor on the ground taking a cowboy boot to the head, more than once, 
before the Becketts start shooting. Harry's grazed, but dodges behind the kitchen counter. The automatic jams, yay for ambient magic hexing technology. Victor deploys a half dozen scorpion talismans, screams them to life, and begins them growing. They come after Harry, getting larger by the second. Jim summarizes Harry's fuckedness perfectly. Quote, a room full of deadly drugs, one evil sorcerer on his home turf, two crazies with guns, one storm of wild magic looking for something to set it into explosive motion, and half a dozen scorpions like the one I had barely survived earlier, rapidly growing to movie monster size. Unquote. Fuckedness, 7 out of 10. Now our pin. Harry built a wall to divert the fire and the heat because he didn't have his shield bracelet. Now, we know what happened to Harry when he does try to use his shield bracelet to block fire. We know because it happens to him in Death Masks, Book 5, and the hand he holds in front of him, the hand with the bracelet, suffers third-degree burns, like nerves gone, flesh effectively melted. And that that's years of practice later. I don't know about you, but... Methinks he is a lucky duck that he isn't wearing it tonight. Let me know what you think in the comments. Chapter 26, The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Harry grabs a pathetic broom as the best weapon he can't really wield with a bullet in his hip. Then a ludicrous idea hits him, and he encants, enchanting the broom with a spell he was forced to learn, presumably by Justin. The thing comes to life and starts sweeping the floor, and the scorpions, out of the kitchen. Y'all, I cannot read this chapter without hearing that song. The ponderous oboe becoming more and more threatening as Mickey Mouse dozes, too lazy to fetch water buckets himself, but this time it's saving Harry's life, flipping the creatures onto their backs and sending them to the edge of the balcony with short, neat strokes. The Becketts fire at Harry again, and Harry hides, allowing the kitchen counter to take all the hits. The wound hurts, and the fire is catching. Victor grabs and breaks the broom, but the scorpions are already off the edge to the lower floor. Harry talks some shit. Victor tries to roast Harry again, but the counter takes most of the blast, and the little that's left is easy to block. Harry talks some more shit. This is a pattern with Harry. It seems he must battle wits with his opponents before he destroys them. Victor talks smack back and demands to know who sent Dresden. Now, this is the villain speaking, but as he guesses, is it Marcone? No. The next two guesses are Linda and Jennifer, and both are named with what y'all probably know by now is my least favorite slur, which we who are civilized now replace with sex worker. What was that, five, six times in one book? More than the drug user slur? It seems excessive. Hopefully we'll see a dramatic reduction in the incidence of these terms as the series goes on. Anywho, Harry refuses to give up Monica, just in case Victor gets away. Victor then summons the Toad Demon, calling its name three times and stupidly giving the name to Harry. But Harry steals Kalshazak from Victor and keeps him from leaving by throwing himself at him bodily using another wind spell. They land near the edge of the balcony, and by now the fire is nearly everywhere surrounding them. Victor can't control the demon anymore, and screams at Harry, What did you do? Quote, The fourth law of magic forbids the binding of any being against its will, I grated out. 
Pain was tight around my throat, making me fight to speak the words. So I stepped in and cut your control over it, and didn't establish any of my own. Victor's eyes widened. You mean... It's free, I confirmed, and glanced at the demon. Looks hungry. What do we do? Victor said. His voice was shaking, and he started shaking me, too. What do we do? We die, I said. Hell, I was going to do that anyway, but at least this way I get to take you with me. Unquote. Victor, knowing Harry beat the damn thing once before, offers that they should beat it together. But Harry has resigned himself to his fate and doesn't trust Victor, as he's tried to kill Harry a few times now and would never work with a warlock scumbag anyway. Harry just smiles. They tussle again and both topple over the balcony, Harry grabbing the railing before being thrown into the arachnid-filled spreading conflagration below. Unfortunately, bad guys can play that game too, and Victor has a better grip, higher up. The scorpions are destroying the furniture, the toad demon is coming at them both, and Victor is going to cast and prevail and get away while Harry dies horribly. So Harry does the thing he does best to slow him down. He talks more shit, revealing that Victor's wife, Monica, was the one who sent Harry after him. Incensed, Victor starts trying to kill Harry, and the toad demon, Kal Shazak, crunches Victor's neck in its mouth. His flailing almost knocks Harry off, but after a brief, I'm gonna die, reflection on his situation, Harry remembers his pretty law enforcement bracelets and clicks the dangling cuff onto the railing and holds on tight. As Victor, bleeding profusely, goes after Harry again, Harry grabs Victor's pant leg and yanks him down. The Shadow Man and the Toad Demon both go hurtling down into the flaming scorpion pit, and the two villains are stung to death. Man, Harry is starving. He hasn't even eaten since the steak at Max. Morgan, who had seen during his approach as Harry took down the warlock without breaking a single law of magic, dispatches the scorpions and brings down his gleaming silver sword of office. Harry thinks Morgan is going to kill him, but turns out he's cutting Harry loose from the cuffs to haul him back up and over the rail. Chapter 27. Exoneration. Jim doesn't dawdle in epilogue. He wraps up efficiently, as always, and so shall we. Harry laughs hysterically at Morgan, hating that he had to save Harry and admit that he was innocent all along. The council met on Monday, Morgan testified the truth, and the pretension of, I mean, the doom of Damocles is lifted. Everyone thinks that Harry knocked off Victor on behalf of Marcone, and Harry lets them for expediency. The Becketts are arrested for public indecency of all things, and then convicted of all the drug stuff later. Harry spends time in the hospital near Murphy's room. She forgives him, sorta. At least she'll work with him again and pay him fairly. And Harry Blackstone Copperfield Dresden is still in the book. But I do have one more pearl for you before we go. Okay, fine, a slight dawdle. In the opening of this last chapter, immediately after Morgan performs CPR on Harry on the lake house lawn, quote, I awoke somewhere cool and dark, in tremendous pain, coughing my lungs out. Rain was falling in my face, and it was the greatest feeling I'd ever known. Unquote. Now I remind you of the point Jim made last chapter, mentioning that Harry was famished. And now I quote from the end of Ghost Story, 
Book 13. Quote, I was in a cave, lit by wan, onion-colored light. I could see a roof of rock and earth, with roots of trees as thick as my wrist trailing through here and there. Water dripped down from overhead all around me. I could hear it. Some dropped onto my lips, and I licked at it. It tasted sweet, sweeter than double-thick cherry syrup, and I shivered in pleasure this time. I was starving, unquote. He was also in a whole lot of pain. This is an echo which, even if it doesn't mean anything, is worth pointing out because of how darn nifty it is. This time, he thought he was going to die, and instead, he woke up outside at night in the rain, somewhere cool and dark and wet. He was hungry and hurting, and hovering over him was the embodiment of his existential dread, Morgan the Warden, unexpectedly saving his life. Later, he thinks he's already died, but instead, he wakes up in a cave under a lake. Same lake as Victor's lair, by the way. Somewhere cool and dark and wet. He's hungry and hurting, and hovering over him is the embodiment of his existential dread. A skeletal nab, unexpectedly maintaining his life. This is what I thought of when I read that passage this time, and it may be the only time that that parallel is made, but it might not be. And I wonder how many times this might happen in the series, and I'm just not remembering it. So... Many dismiss this series as juvenile because it's urban fantasy and it's not written obtusely like a Norse saga or some other amazing authors that I love. But when Gurm's novels get too dense for the moment and I need something fun and accessible, this is where I go. And it's not vacuous either. It is full of interwoven hidden nuggets like this, extensive world building and profound life lessons. And that's why we're here. So that's the episode, and that is Stormfront. My peeps, we did it. We're going to take a quick break from the narrative between the books for a bonus episode. Long-promised bonus episode. And then we'll pick up Full Moon, book two. I asked you all via Twitter poll what you wanted to cover, and by an overwhelming 60%, our topic is the mythology of Mab, Queen of Air and Darkness. Who is Mab in the Dresden Files, and how did she get there? From Irish folklore, reimagined by Shakespeare, allegorized by Percy Shelley, and finally returning her to her dark, terrifying roots in modern fiction. So, arigato, dankeschön, and thank you all kindly for listening. I've been your host, Christine. Thank you to my supporters, without whom this project would not be possible. You know who you are. Thank you to my inspirations, those literary podcast giants on whose mighty shoulders I attempt to balance. And thanks to Jim Butcher for creating such a thrilling and insightful series, up about which I simply cannot shut. The Never Never Podcast is hosted on Podbean, and is also now available on Apple, Google, Amazon, Audible, Pandora, Alexa, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, Listen Notes, and more! Please follow, share, like, comment, subscribe. Email me at theneverneverpodcast at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at neverneverpod. You have my consent to flirt with my algorithms and to spank all the buttons. Take care. <laughs>